0: Well, I'm not going to talk about Babylonian religions or uh, biblical law or anything like that this morning. Amen. I'm going to talk about something very familiar. In fact, it's so familiar that you may wonder why on earth I pick it. I think for some of us it's a bit old hat. But we're going to talk this morning about the parable of the prodigal son. Now, this is a very old story, and we know it very well, to the point where I think we miss a lot of the things that it says to us. So we're going to try to look at it fresh this morning and see if we can understand more fully what it tells us, particularly in relationship to our theme, uh, having the assurance of salvation. So I would like to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Luke 15 and... uh, We will start with verse 11. I'm going to just read the parable, just to refresh our memories, even though I know we practically have it memorized. And then we'll talk about it, step by step. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion, and he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. And put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house... He heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf. And because he had got him back safe and sound, then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came back, He has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and was found. Now that's a sermon in itself. I could sit down. But let's take a look at it. Detail by detail. The title of my talk this morning really is The Prodigal Father, not The Prodigal Son. And the reason for that is, is, have you noticed what this father does? You know the word prodigal has two different nuances. It can mean a person who squanders something, wastes, it. and it can mean someone who is lavish in giving. It has those two different nuances. Well, the son, the prodigal son squanders what his father gives him. But the father is lavish. Have you never noticed that about this parable? Um, First of all, think about the implications. And, And one of the ways we have of doing this is to think about the setting. In Jesus' time, particularly among the Jews, there was this hierarchical level of giving in terms of inheritance. When the father died, the inheritance was divided between his offspring, usually between his sons. And the oldest son always got a double portion. And then the remaining sons, divided equally among them. So the oldest son was always kind of on top. And one of the things that was never done by any children who were... uh, Respectful of their parents was to suggest that they should get their inheritance while their parents are still alive. So, for the younger son to say to his father, "Give me the inheritance that falls to me," was to suggest that his father he was treating his father as though he were dead. Now, that's that's a terrible slap in the face. I mean, it's by the worst thing, the most impolite and rude thing he could have done to his father. In fact, it was akin to disowning his father. So in Jewish eyes, what he's done is absolutely despicable, or to use a more Jewish term, an abomination. He's really overstepped his boundaries. And this father, you would expect him to say, you're kidding, you're no longer my son, (laughs) out. This father simply does what the younger son demands. Now that's a prodigal father in life. He's lavish to the point of almost feeling like, makes, making us feel like he's maybe squandered his wealth. How dare he give it to a son who's so rude and disrespectful as to count him as dead before his time? But he divides the property between them. And this younger son, a few days later, gets all he has together and he travels to a very distant country. And there he lives a riotous life. He enjoys everything he wants. He does all the things he knows at home his dad wouldn't have wanted him to do. Um, He wastes his money on everybody. And you know how it is when you spend money on people. They become your friends until you run out of money. And of course he ran out of money and began to be in want. And he had to go looking for a job. So he hires himself out to a farmer in the area who has pigs as his crop? And in the Jewish culture, of course, that's an unclean animal. It's the last thing a Jew would raise. He has no experience, of course, dealing with pigs. And I don't know if you've ever driven by a pig farm. Anybody here ever driven by a pig farm? You know that for about five miles in radius, you are holding your nose. They are just putrid smelling. Eh? You can drive down I-5 past Kalinga, Kalinga and that's bad enough with the cows but going through a pig farm is just really horrendous so you can imagine him sitting out there he's he's starving he's thin his clothes are, are tattered rags and he's sitting out there in this filthy spot and wishing he's so hungry this is the level which he's on he's so hungry that all he can think of is only if I could be a pig I could eat those pods that the pigs are eating I'm, I'm tempted to preach a little at this point and suggest that one of our problems in dealing with the issues of salvation and having the assurance of salvation is that we are too much like the prodigal son in our mind. That is, we don't realize how good we have it in our father's house and we tend to sell ourselves out. And then when we sell ourselves out, the only time we really feel that we have to have God is when we desperately, desperately need him. The rest of the time when things are going well, well, we'll just serve him a little bit. We'll pay him a little tithe. We'll pay him a little offering. And, and we'll read a little Bible and we'll go to a little church and, and we'll just do a little Christianity. Uh, we're not home. We're not enjoying the family. We're not in an intimate relationship with God. And, and it gives us that feeling of, of being hired out. Uh, and, and finally, when everything's disastrous, that's when we really reach out to God and find a deeper relationship with him. And that's what happens here. He gets in this situation where he's in desperate need of the most basic sustenance of life. Food. And then it says, he came to himself. That is, he started thinking straighter. It's amazing how we don't think rationally about life until we, we hit the minimum values. And then suddenly everything gets perspective. And he had that perspective out there in the pig pan. But not a complete perspective. You see... He doesn't understand what it's like to be home. He hasn't been home for years. And so he says to himself, I'm going to go home to my father's house because at home, and of course what led him to think this was the thought of eating pig's food. He may have even wished he could have a few pork steaks himself, even though he was Jewish. He started thinking about the fact that at home, when they laid the table out, the servants had plenty to eat. And there was some left over. The servants never went hungry. So he thought, well, at least I can go home and be one of Dad's hired servants. I'll do that. And so he picked himself up. And he started off and he started memorizing his little speech. Dad, I've sinned against heaven. Decided he better add that because he knew his father was a very religious man. I have sinned against heaven. And before you... I'm no longer worthy to be your son. You should have kicked me out when I asked for the inheritance, but you didn't. Treat me like one of your hired hands. I mean, he knows he's going to come home and all the neighbors are going to be going, What? That rascal dares to come back? After he told his dad, basically, you're dead and I want your money. And then took off with it and spent it all. on look, he's in rags, he obviously squandered it. He knows there's going to be talk in the neighborhood. And so he figures the best way to get out of this is to his dad can then tell all the neighbors, well, you know, yeah, he came home, but he's my hired servant. He's not my son. And so he's walking along this path, and when he's still a long way off, his dad saw him. Now, in order for his dad to see him at a great distance, he had to be looking, right? When you're out plowing the corn and reading and and all those things, you're not necessarily seeing somebody come from a long way off. You have to be at the gate, shading your eyes against the sun and looking down that road. And that's where the father is. And he sees this lone figure coming along, probably limping with all kinds of sores on his feet from having traveled so far. He obviously couldn't take public transportation. And hungry as could be, weak from hunger, he's probably staggering down the road. But he still recognizes him as the arrogant young upstart who left the gates days before. And so he has compassion on him and he runs to him. Now, that's hardly what the boy expects, right? He's, he's limping home, um, trying to keep his energy level up long enough to reach the gate where he probably is going to collapse. And he doesn't even get to the gate when his father throws his arms around him have you ever thrown your arms around a pig? <laughs> Anybody in a pigsty is going to smell like a pig? They're going to be caked with dirt like a pig? Because pigs love to root. They stir up the dust. And a person in a pigsty is going to get covered with the same dust as pigsty. And they're going to smell and, and feel just like a pig, a really very dirty pig. And so here is this boy... Caked from head to toe with mud. And his father throws his arms around him and smothers him in a hug. And, you know, the first thought that probably went through his mind was, Oh no, I'm getting arrested. My dad's going to take me and haul me off to jail or something. Because he just was not expecting it. He was not prepared for his father to be that compassionate. And, of course, if the neighbors were watching, they were probably totally scandalized. And we can tell that by the response of the older brother. So, the father says, Son, I'm so glad to see you back. But the boy doesn't hear him. And he starts his little speech, uh, which is muffled, you understand, because his dad has him so tight. He can't hardly speak. But he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Uh, the words are exactly the same as what he planned to say. So, though this is a memorized speech, this is not spontaneous. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. And he doesn't get to finish it. What part of the speech doesn't he say? He doesn't get to tell his daddy he his hired. servant. does his dad expect that from him? I rather think so. I think he simply interrupts him so he can't say it. And he says to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. You know what that ring was for? In ancient times, a ring was kind of like a seal. It gave you authority. His father's ring gave him access to his father's bank account. Would you do that? <clears throat> um, you have a, a teenage son. Who takes your new Mercedes out and wrecks it? You then give him the keys to the next one, right? (laughs) Um, That's basically what he does. Only worse, he keeps it to his whole bank account. The boy can go out and spend his father's money in whatever way he wants. That's not how we do parenting, is it? And in the process, there's a sacrifice, but it's not a sacrifice of payment. It's a sacrifice of joy. And get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and was alive again. He was lost and found. And they began to celebrate. Bring out the music. Now, what music do you think they used? All to Jesus I Surrender. Chief of sinners, though, I do. I've wandered far away from God, now I'm coming home. That would be appropriate, wouldn't it? Just as I am without one plea. Where are our hymns of celebration when our children come home? Do we have any? It troubles me that, that the hymns we use to, to bring sinners to repentance are so sad. And so depressing that we don't have we don't know how to celebrate when people come back to God. I mean, Jesus points out in these parables, all three of them, that there is more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner comes to repentance than when we find something very valuable that we have lost. Now you can think about the times that's happened to you uh, and the times you've celebrated. I'm afraid that we've lost the art of real celebration. Now we try to mimic it once in a while. But the real celebration comes when we realize who our father is. You see, my understanding of this prodigal son from what Ellen White says is that he left home because he misunderstood his father. He saw him as harsh, severe, and mercenary. And permitting him, or or forbidding him to have a good time. And so it was out of that misconception of his father that he got all of this wealth and chose to squander it. And so when he comes home, naturally, he comes back on that same misconception. Well, I blew it really bad, and Dad's not going to accept me any other way than if I just come back as a surgeon. Have you ever fallen... Then something really that you knew was bad. And the next time you came back to God, did you come back as a child or did you come back as a servant? See, our tendency is, when we fall, to think of ourselves as, okay, we're no longer sons and daughters of God, we're now servants. And some of us buy into that as a norm. But that's not the end of the story. We often end the story there. We miss, I think, the most important part of what Jesus is trying to tell. Now, this is the part that kind of rubs us the wrong way, because most of us aren't prodigals, right? We stayed home. We're still sitting in those church pews every Sabbath, faithfully. Uh, We haven't gone and squandered our Heavenly Father's wealth. We haven't gone away from Him. We haven't done despicable things. We haven't lived it up in riotous living. We have never darkened a door of a bar. We have never uh, done anything that that we would be ashamed of in that way. So this part of the story kind of gets under our skin a little bit. This the most important part because what we do is miss the whole message that Jesus wanted to give in this part of the parable. Now the elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. One of those celebration services going on at home. He heard this music and this dancing. That's real celebration. We don't dance to uh, all to Jesus I surrender. Or I've wandered far away from God and now I'm coming home. We wouldn't think of that. In fact, we don't think of dancing altogether. Dancing sounds like something like reverence, that's something like what that, old, that younger brother did when he went home, away from home. He must have gone out and danced, right? Well, he probably did a different kind. But there they are, really celebrating. That is enough to make any good, loyal Christian who stayed home apprehensive. And the older brother is very apprehensive. And he calls one of the slaves i asked what was going on. And the slaves replied, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted cat because he got him back safe and sound. And the older brother is I think he's furious. He's not just angry, he's furious. How dare he! Now I used to think that he was rightfully angry. I mean, a little bit, you know. After all, this younger brother took off with the inheritance. Until I read the first part of the story again. Go back to verse 12. There was a man, actually, verse 11, who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. That means the older brother got his share, his double portion when the younger brother took off with his. That's something very key to what follows in this story. So he becomes angry and he refuses to go in. Now, you can imagine, this is probably late in the day. There's an intimation in the story that this must have been the case. It's evening. Uh, That's the time when you usually put up the holes and the shovels and and the brakes and all the things you're using on the farm. You milk the cows and you come in and you relax for the evening. And then later on you maybe go out and do a few more things. But but basically the sun is waning and it's time to kind of wrap things up. And the younger brother and the older brother refuses to go in. He stays out in the field, still hoeing his row of corn. And his father and this is a most Theologically pregnant statement in this next line. His father came out and began to intercede with him. A word in the Greek. You've all heard that the the advocate, the word advocate is Paracletos, or Paracletos, depending on how you pronounce the Greek. I always pronounce it, parakletos, because it's actually composed of two words, para and kaleo. Uh, It means someone called alongside. Literal. Someone called to your aid. Someone who's beside you. That's the word for advocate. Now we tend to think of Jesus as doing that with the Father. Someone helping us by pleading for us with the Father. Now Jesus called the Holy Spirit the Comforter. And that word also is paracletos. Someone called to be our aid. And you remember that in Romans 8, it talks about the Holy Spirit pleading with sighs too deep for words. He prays for us. So we tend to have this image of, of intercession is something Jesus does for us with the Father. So if we were to change the parable a little bit, the boy comes home and the older brother is there at the gate. Dad, please accept my, my younger brother. That would be the picture that we would have to re- read into the story. But that's, not, that's the opposite. And Jesus, I think, knows that picture very well. I think the Jews had that basic concept. That there had to be someone between them and God, pleading with God to accept them. And he takes that picture and throws it upside down. Instead, it is the father pleading with the older brother. And and I would like to raise a question this morning. Is Jesus having to plead with a reluctant father to forgive and love us, or is he having to plead with us as reluctant servants? So he goes out to intercede with him. But he answered his father, Look here. All these years, I've been slaving away for you. Now... I mentioned that the younger brother had a bad picture of his father. He saw him as a person who was a hard man, um, rather a killjoy, someone who would keep him from having fun, someone who was a harsh taskmaster. He saw him that way, but what about the older brother? Did he have a better concept? You see, the younger son came back thinking of his father as someone maybe he could work for as a hireling hired servant, the older brother sees himself at home as slaving away for his father who's a slave master. He has a worse concept of his father. Now that's where it really pinches, doesn't it? Is it possible that those of us who haven't wandered away from God,
1: who haven't left the church,
0: and and this speaks to me very strongly because I have an older brother, and he was the prodigal in our family. He hasn't been an Adventist since 1982. In fact, he told me once he would never darken the door of an Adventist church except for a wedding or a funeral. Um, Is it possible that those of us who stay home maybe actually have a worse concept of our Heavenly Father than those who have left? I mean, neither concept is really healthy, but... There's a shade degree difference between being a servant and being an abject slave. And so he says, "I have slaved for you all these years and never disobeyed your command. I kept all ten of the ten commandments all these years. Yet you have never given me even as much as a kid that I might celebrate with my friends. See what a harsh man!" Here, I've worked so hard for you, and you just never loosen up. Terrible concept of his father, especially when you read the next line. But when the son of yours comes back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted cat for him, reeking with jealousy. <laughs> and then the father said to him, And these to me are the most important and glorious words of the entire story. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. And that sends us right back to the beginning of the story. When he divided to them both, his living. To his younger son, he gave the hard assets. The cash he had saved in the bank, the things that could easily be obtained. That was probably about a third of what he owned. But to the older brother he gave the the assets that were frozen, the land, the property, the houses, the livestock, the machinery, the servants. All of that went to the older brother. Because when it says he divided his property between that it means he, he handed it all over to his son. And the older brother would have gotten the two-thirds, which would have been all of the things that you couldn't carry off easily. And the father, as it were, is saying, Son, I had no idea you had such a terrible misconception of what was going on. I thought I was working for you all these years. You own this land. You own the houses. And the and the machinery and the cattle and the sheep and all of the things that we have. And when your son and when the, your younger brother came home, I tried to think what I could give him. Well, I had this ring, and it's really quite obsolete because you own everything. And I had my tuxedo in the closet, and I don't wear it very often, but I thought it would be fitting to give to him. And then, yes, I did take a fatted calf and kill it. I thought you wouldn't mind, but all that I have is yours. I would recommend while you're here at PUC and and away from city lights that you take a little trip back on top of the hill, back to the airport, and back behind it, and that you look some night while you're here at the starry sky. And you let God speak to you through this story and tell you all that I have is yours. Our problem is that we don't really know our heavenly father. We're afraid to believe he could be that generous, that totally loving, that totally prodigal. We, we don't really trust that he doesn't require an arm and a leg off of us in terms of payback. You see, when you were a child, did you ever worry that your parents might kick you out of the house? You did if you were abused. But if you were a loved child, you never worried about that. Ten seconds. Never even probably crossed your mind. When you left home, did you worry you couldn't come home again? You see, when we know our our Parents, when we can trust them, we don't worry about how they'll treat us. We don't worry about earning their love. Now, unfortunately, all of our parents and ourselves have bought in enough to Satan's lies about God that we have become somewhat less than perfect examples of who God is. This is why Jesus told this parable. But A trusting child with a loving parent does not need to fear whether they can come home again. Whether they're in rags or whether they're in riches. They know they're free. What troubles me is that I don't feel that our churches have that kind of openness. And maybe it's because we, like the older brother, are content with being God's slaves, working hard in the field. But really, deep inside, we are a little hostile toward God because He hasn't given us more. Not realizing that He already gave us everything. Paul put it this way in Romans 8. He who gave us Jesus, will He not give us everything with Him? And Ellen White takes that statement a little further and she says that God gave all heaven in the gift of His Son. We have the keys to the house. We have the keys to the car. We have the keys to God's entire dominion. All that he has is ours. the, the, The older brother missed the whole point of what salvation is all about. It's not getting to heaven. It's the joy of being home and working beside our Father. There's a hint of that when the Father says, You are always with me. What I thought you really wanted was was the joy and the privilege and the pleasure of hoeing corn side by side in the field. Of talking about how we can improve things out here. Of talking about our farm. I thought you wanted to be with me. I thought you saw me as a person who was your friend. And my fear is... That we are more content to see God as a harsh taskmaster, as a slave master, than we are to see him as a friend. That what God really wants from his children is not slaveship. He wants friendship. He wants to work side by side with us. He wants us to understand that he is our friend, that he has our best interests at heart. There is nothing in the story that gives us the feeling that the father really was harsh. He gives everything. He's very lavish. He's he's almost reckless with his wealth. We wouldn't spend our money the way he does. And then he goes and celebrates when his son comes home. That's how God is. That's the kind of father Jesus came to be That's why he spent more time feasting than fasting. And you remember he, he told his critics... Uh, who claimed he was a glutton that when the bridegroom is with them they don't need to fast they can feast but eventually the bridegroom will be taken away and that's when they'll fast I'm sure they fasted when Jesus was lying in the tomb that that's out. When that's when the fast is when we can't understand and see things clearly and we feel separated from God but when we have him beside us, when we sense his presence, when we are with him, that's when we can feast. That's when we can celebrate. That's when we can pull out all the instruments and make a joyful noise into the Lord. I would like to give a, an invitation this morning to each of you to think about in your minds throughout the coming days. Are you God's hired servant? You know, those, those of us who are hired servants are the kind who sit down and say, well, if I give so much percent of tithe and so much percent of offerings and I read so much percent of my time with the Bible and, and I give so much of my time in missionary work to the Lord, um, that will enable me to get so much eternal life. Or God will give me so much blessing down here. Or are we his slaves? God wants it all. All to Jesus I surrender. Now, that's true, but we put that in such a dark hue sometimes. So he just wants everything, and so I just got to work hard and pray hard and study hard and try hard to be a good Christian. That's a hard life. Or are we his friends? Your friends work very hard. But they enjoy every minute of it. That's the difference. And I I think that being a friend of God means that we no longer see him as a harsh taskmaster or even as a boss for whom we get paid if we work hard but we see him to want to become like him that's when we can start working with him. because the extent that we open our arms to other people and are generous with them is the extent to which we have let God be generous with us I know we all have a tendency in our human lives that we live down here in such a fast pace. We tend to think life sometimes is pretty hard. And we get tough, and and we can handle it, and we just keep on. And no matter what comes to us, whether it's sickness or whether it's, it's adversity or whatever, we get through it. Yeah, we rely on the Lord, but we get through it. We're strong. And somebody else comes along and they stumble because life is hard for them. And we say, just get up and, and hang tough. Why don't you get with it? Thus, behaving, I think, in the way of a slave. Or at least a hired servant. Friendship means that we admit that the wrong is tough and we go to God for our strength. Because we can trust him. And I'm convinced that when it comes to salvation and to eternal life, that our biggest problem is not whether we're going to make it or not. It's not the where. It's not the how. It's the who. You see, if God is someone we can really trust, who is generous, who is on our side, who is out to save us, Who, in the previous parables, is out searching for us when we don't know we're lost. If he is really that way, if he is really the way Jesus revealed him in his own life, then we don't have to fear about eternity, because we can trust him. I think that a lot of our fears about the future and about eternity are because we're really afraid of God. We don't really know him. We don't really trust him. After all, our salvation is dependent on a person. Is it not? Isn't it whether we get in the front gate of of heaven, which is our Father's house, dependent upon whether he opens it up to us? Well, the music is stopped in the Father's house. Fatty calf is growing cold on the table. The dancers have one foot raised in the air waiting for the music to start so they can resume dancing. The musicians have their instruments poised waiting for the conductor to give them the next note. The conductor is waiting for the word that they can resume the celebration. And our Heavenly Father stands in the field of this world, waiting for our answer. Will we be His servants? Will we be His slaves? Or will we be His friends?